Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Alan Long, who is the Head of Compliance Assurance, Greater China at Citibank. Alan completed an accounting and finance degree at Monash University and worked at KPMG in audit for six years. In 2005, he joined Standard Charter Bank as Regional Head of Audit for the Consumer Finance Division. Alan has also worked at Deutsche Bank and UBS in internal audit. In 2011, Alan moved to Invesco as Internal Audit Director APAC for six years before joining City in his current role in 2017. Alan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. I'd like to start off with a little bit about your early life and where you grew up. Sure. Well, um, so I was born in Hong Kong, as some of you could tell from the accent. So I was born in Hong Kong, but the family and I moved to Australia quite early in uh, the early 90s. So I think I was in, uh, in primary school at that time where we moved to a relatively smaller city uh, called Wulongong. So for those of you that are not aware, Wulongong is around one and a half hours drive from Sydney. So it's not too far. But in the early 90s, it was you know, really, really a suburb kind of living style. And for me, it was, it was a big change, moving from Hong Kong as a, as a kid to a place that is completely new. Um, and everyone is sort of, much, the pace was much slower. It's a massive and, change. Yeah, a massive change, absolutely. And the biggest challenge was my English was extremely limited. And at that time, amazingly, as a kid, you just didn't care about that. You get along with people very easily. You know, you start going out to play sports activities. So those are really good times. You know, after school, you would hang out with kids near where you live. And that, I think that was the time that I sort of developed my interest with outdoor activities and a lot of the sports that we were doing. So after a few years in Wulongong, um, the family and I moved back to Hong Kong, where I had some of the high schools done in Hong Kong and eventually made my way back to Australia where I did the, um, the accounting degree in Monash University. In Melbourne? In Melbourne. Yep. Absolutely. So Great university. I went really there, Alan. Love the best. So I had a really good time there in Monash. Uh, in Melbourne, I think I was there three to four years. Um, and I did accounting, actually. It was purely an instruction for my father. So you would have thought this is something that doesn't happen in this, in this era. But my father, uh, which had six infants you know, to me as a kid because... He, he, he is in the IT industry. So he, he manages one of the IT department in some of the universities in Hong Kong. So even when I was a kid in, in, in primary school, I was heavily exposed with computers. So that was back when everyone had no idea what computers are. Um, I was already on the internet. I was already on the internet in primary three or four, way before anyone was, was using it. It was all text-based. And I was really into computing. You know, in the summer, I would actually go into do computer languages class. Um, and I still remember the first time I put some coding in and tried to come up with a game, very simple game where you press a key and then something would happen. And that was fascinating. But then um, my father suggested me not to do anything to do with IT in universities or in my <laughs> career. <laughs> because, um, because you say IT changes every day. Right. And, and, you know, I think he was coming from a perspective where there's a new version of the software every few months. And there's a new version of the hardware every few, every few months as well. 
And that's absolutely true. And, you know, he probably got sick of it. Um, and he told me to do accounting where I had absolutely no exposure with and no idea what it was. All I knew was all business must need some kind of accounting. And that, I think that was the reason why he wanted me to do it. So that, you know, at least I can make a living. Accounting principles would not really change that much. And every business would kind of need accounting. And that was purely the reason how I got into doing accounting in, in the Monash University. Mm. So there's a lot of um, graduates from accounting. You know, we, we moved on to the big four, actually big five at that time, with the um, accounting firm. So when I graduated in Melbourne, I actually bought a return ticket to back to Hong Kong to to just take a break. But then somehow I got accepted into KPMG. And that was the time that I thought, okay, you know, I think I think I should make a career here. It's just fantastic exposure. Um, you know, that was something that I think everyone was streaming off to be become of the big five at that time. So I stayed. And that that's really how I started my career in Hong Kong in KPMG. I spent five to six years in that firm. You know, exposure again was fantastic. You know, you will work with different team members, different managers different partners, different clients, almost every few, few weeks or few months. Um, but then I moved on to internal audit because after a few years in KPMG, you know, I thought I couldn't really do what I really love to do, and that is to add value to the business. You know, in external audit, um, and I was, I was covering clients that were completely not financial related. So those are clients in the infrastructure, in communication and education industry. So nothing to do with banking, um, but I decided it was time to move on because in external financial statement audit, you would produce a report annually. And I think most of the clients would look for a clean report at the end. And that's all they really care, right, to be honest. And, and that just couldn't give me the satisfaction that I wanted. I really wanted to add some values into the business processes. I want what I do really matters in a way that could change or enhance the efficiency. And that's the time that I thought about internal audit because it is very related to what I've been doing, looking at risk and control figures uh, and processes. But at the same time, I decided to move into banking simply because I thought banking would exist in whatever times we're in, whether we're in recession, whether we're growing significantly in the economy, you know, banking will always be the backbone to support the economy. So I thought banking and internal audit was the right move. And I think it was around 2000. Five, that I had a fantastic opportunity to join one of the subsidiary of Standard Chartered Bank to head up the internal audit role for the consumer finance business. So at that time, it was more about consumer lending, so personal loans. We had credit cards back then, mortgages, but primary customer base was, was the supply market. So people with relatively lower income. Um, that was an interesting stepping stone for me before I get into the investment banking side. Um, because we, I had to build a whole team myself. I had to build up the methodology based on what I know at that time. I had to work with the Standard Chartered Bank Group Head of Audit for Asia. I had to present to the board at that time as well, which consisted of senior Standard Chartered management team members as well. So it was fantastic exposure. Um, I spent around two years there before they expanded the business into India and South Korea. And that was the time that I was made the regional head for audit for that business. It was also the first time that I was exposed working overseas. And that gave me a completely different perspective because not only the the culture is completely different in India versus South Korea versus Hong Kong, uh, it's just amazing how the same business 
are being executed and implemented in different parts of the world and what kind of regulatory requirements that has to be met in order to do the same thing. So that was a very big eye-opener for me in really getting outside of Hong Kong. So I think after around three years there in total in this subsidiary of Standard Chartered Bank, I moved on to Deutsche Bank. It was purely by chance. Um, I was actually applying for a role in Deutsche Bank based in Singapore. And it was at that time, the manager that recruited me uh, was a head of audit for Deutsche Bank. And I think after the first half hour of chat, he actually decided to ask me whether I want to stay on in Hong Kong instead as he wanted to build up the team. And that's really how I got into the role that I was in Deutsche Bank, uh, managing the internal audit for the private bank, the retail business in India and China, and the asset management business based in Hong Kong. Deutsche Bank was a completely different animal. There's much bigger engine, world-class processes, you know, they have world-class systems, even in internal audit at that time. And it was during the, you know, the GFC time. And even during that time, we had really good methodology. I think we had one of the world-class internal audit methodology. We were already rolling out analytics. We were rolling out continuous auditing concepts. So that was a really big eye-opener for me from an internal audit perspective. And with the exposure to much bigger engine in terms of the clients, the products, the people as well. So that was a really, really fantastic exposure I had uh, in, in Deutsche Bank around those two, three years. And I moved on to UBS, where, you know, one of the largest private banks in the region, also doing internal audit. Culture was similar to, to Deutsche Bank, where a lot of the things are driven from Europe, good system, good processes. But then I moved on to Invesco, which was a completely different industry. We went on to the buy side because they were looking for someone to build up the internal audit team for Asia. And I thought that was really exciting. It reminded me of what I did in the subsidiary of Standard Charter Bank. So I joined them uh, quite shortly after UBS, and basically the exposure there was fantastic. You know, I get to work with all the regional senior management team. Um, we are in the buy side, so a lot of the processes, the mentality, the culture is very different to the sales side. And there were a lot of exposure that I had with people from all different kinds of levels. And one of the key challenges actually was to convince people who we are and why do we exist. Because from an asset management perspective, um, the internal audit structure is a little bit less developed compared to some of the investment banks. So I had to go around the region talking to CEOs, talking to various heads of businesses to explain who we are, why do we matter, how do we work together, and how do we add value. And adding value is one of the key things that I always had you know, in my mind as an internal auditor. Um, which sounds a, a little bit surprising because you, if you talk to some stranger and they ask you what you do uh, and you tell them you in internal audit, you know, it doesn't sound as fancy as someone maybe in the business, a sales or a banker. But if you think about it from the way how a bank or financial institution is structured, the three lines of defense is critical. You know, it's something that we can't get out of. And being internal audit has the, has the authority to make sure everything goes well in the business and has the exposure to work directly with senior management people. So internal audit is probably the only one of the few functions that you get to be exposed with all sorts of different businesses and people in any bank or in any businesses. So I think that was the key drive of why I really enjoyed that profession a lot. And I, speak, I think I spent six to seven years in school building up the Asia team before joining City, where I am right now. Has there been a particular key mentor 
or mentorees in your career? And if so, how how has that person or those people helped develop your career and your leadership style? Sure. So I think I was really fortunate, like a lot of people, that you know I was exposed working with a lot of really good managers. So I think the first turning point for me was joining the subsidiary of Standard Chartered Bank, where you know the manager at that time, now who I still see as a as a key mentor, he he manages all the credit compliance, legal, and audit functions for that company. And he trusted me to build that function. And he gave me a lot of insight into how a bank would work. And I think at that time, you know, I started to really get exposed to talking to different people. And he gave me a lot of insight as to how internal audit should be. And I still remember this. Um, you know, we actually use an analogy that I always still use now, where running a bank or, or any business it's like running a car. What I mean by that is, you know, we have a good chassis for the car and we have a good engine. The engine part would be the front office, you know, with, with the sales team, where they always try to drive revenue and bring revenue to the company. So similar to a car, the engine is important. That determines how fast you go. But at the same time, you do need brakes and suspension and good tires. Otherwise, you won't be able to make turns and to stop properly. And I think we all know that to go fast, you know, just going through a straight line, it, it won't get us anywhere. So in order for a car to go really fast, we need proper brakes, suspension, and licenses as well. And that's where internal audit, compliance, and a lot of the different risk functions will come in. So for a car to run really well on a track, we need all different parts of the car to function together. And no car can go fast with just a good engine with no good brakes. That's something that I, I still believe, and I often tell my team and, you know, people that I meet with. So to explain why that you know, internal audit compliance risk function matters just the same as the sales team, the front office, because we do have to work hand in hand. So I think that was a, a good mentor that I had. And then another one was obviously when I joined Deutsche Bank, because um, the manager at the time gave me the chance to work in the Hong Kong office, you know, without being relocated to Singapore. And you know, he gave me a lot of perspective in how to deal with senior stakeholders. And from there, I understand that in internal audit, while we might not know everything that a business knows. We do know a lot more from a risk and control perspective that, you know, the stakeholders that we talk to might not be as fully aware as we do. So we always need to acknowledge that we probably won't be as knowledgeable as the stakeholders that we talk to, but we can always still add value. So that was, that was a good turning point for me to see the bigger world, you know, in a global investment bank. Um, and then when I joined City, I was just really fortunate to have my manager to uh, recognize my abilities. Um, and I think I, after I joined two years, I was given the opportunity to expand my role into the greater China region. So, you know, there's a lot of coaching involved there that I think, you know, I'm just really fortunate to have um, really good managers throughout my entire career so far. Has there, when you look back on your career, has there been a significant turning point in your career? Um, I think joining the Financial Institute, part of the subsidiary of Senate Charter, was a was one turning point. Mm. You know, shifting from external audit into internal audit and into banking. So that was the first step, really, for me to be in the banking world. And then, as I move on the years, um, when I joined City, it was actually purely by chance because I was actually going to join another local investment bank to head up the internal audit function and. Unfortunately, there was some major restructuring went on before I was even on board. So they had to cancel my uh, my contract. 
And at that time, it, it was a really good reflection for me um, to think about what else I could do. Um, so I was basically looking for a job um, because you know, the contract, they didn't want to honor the contract if they were restructuring. But it was a really good timing for me to just take a step back to look at what I've learned throughout the years, what I've been doing and what else could I be doing outside of internal audit. And that was when I decided to join the second line of defense in compliance assurance now in the role that I am managing in the city. Um, so that was another big turning point and that was purely by chance. And, and I was really fortunate to have taken this role. Everyone in their career has significant challenges throughout their careers. Is there one challenge or one fundamental key challenge that you look back on uh, in your career that is a standout? And, and if so, how did you overcome that challenge? I think as compliance professional or audit professional, we, we have challenges every day, mm. right? And I'm sure everyone would agree to that. And one of the key challenges is the ever-changing environment that we're, we're living in. Um, I think mean, on a broader sense, you know, how do we get um, updated with the trend? How do we make sure we are equipped to tackle those challenges? That's something that we should really bear in mind in, the, in our day-to-day. And from my perspective in my career, I think one of the key challenges was when I was looking for a job before I joined City. Um, you know, on one hand, it was fantastic to, to have a break. Um, and for me to have the ability to just reflect on myself, what else I could do. On the other hand, it was really challenging to, with all the unknown. And to, to tackle that, you know, I keep telling myself it's just a matter of time. It is a fantastic time for me to explore other opportunities. So um, never give up, you know, always try to find a way around any problems that you face. That was a really difficult time for me personally, but, you know, with the support with your mentors, the networks that you've built up in the past, they do really pay off. You know, when I joined City, it was actually a referral from an ex-colleague of mine that I worked with at UBS, and that really paid off. The networking that you build up and the connection that you keep um, with these people uh, over your career, I think that is a, a key ingredient for your success. You've managed a range of different sized teams throughout your career. What do you think are the key attributes to being an effective leader? I think an effective leader needs to have the ability to listen. I always try to listen more than I say. Um, as a manager, I think sometimes it is very easy for us to just give an instruction mm. for someone to do something. Some of the time we might lose sight of what is their perspective in the task that they've been asked to do. Um, so being a good listener, always obtain feedback is just a fundamental thing that all managers should have. On top of that, I think we need to really help our team members to identify what are the skill sets each of them would have. I believe everyone has a very good skill set and it is the manager's job to really identify it and leverage it into what we do. Mm. You know, if someone is really into analytics, you know, give them the opportunity to build that up, to expand the exposure, to even do lunch and learn, you know, to present to others. If someone is really good at managing communication stakeholders, you know, do a sharing session about that with the team, come up with some good guidelines. So always look for specific skill sets that each of the team members have and try to leverage it. And also to recognize what they do is extremely important because, you know, for managers, it's easy to get output from um, team members, but we often lose sight of just recognizing them uh, and just appreciating how much effort and value they have put in. So giving 
different gratitude and awards or recognition is something that we try to do every day. Um, you know, we don't need to wait for the mid-year annual performance discussion to have this kind of um, dialogue. We should always be giving feedback. We should always be trying to recognize people. And that's something that I, I think of really dearly in my daily daily life. And I think that the last thing is to support them. You know, we need to make sure each one of our team members are properly supported with training, with the right coaching, and with the right opportunity to expand the exposure. I think all of those things would make an effective leader. When you look at stakeholder management, what do you feel are the key elements of effective stakeholder management? That's something that, you know, from an internal audit and compliance assurance perspective, we, we deal with every day. And it is often a challenge, uh, especially when we do have to get into difficult discussions where, you know, we might want to implement a recommendation based on an issue that we found, but the business might have a specific reason why this is not a commercial decision, why it would, would not make sense. And I think one of the key ingredients that internal audit or compliance assurance professionals should have is negotiation skills. And that's something that you know many of us actually lose sight of. Um, we are actually negotiators. Every time we work on a review or an audit or a compliance assurance review, we have to understand the process, we have to discuss with the stakeholders, but most importantly, we have to negotiate with them on any recommendations that we give. And to be an effective negotiator, we always have to think about what the other side is thinking. We always have to think about, from their perspective, is our recommendation, does it make sense from a commercial perspective? Are we able to meet with the regulatory requirements? Are there any alternatives? What are the backup plans we have? So every time before we go into a difficult discussion, you know, me and my team will always try to brainstorm on what are the backup solutions, what are the references we could have, and how can we present it in a way that we need to meet with the regulations at the same time add value to the business. So those are constant things that we try to do. And it always, you know, it always comes to a, a not easy task when we talk to stakeholders about our recommendations. But we just need to bear in mind that we are negotiators. We always need to think about what the other side is thinking before we come up with a solution for the entire bank. If you were going to restart your career now, Alan, what, what would be one key piece of advice that you would give to a younger version of yourself? That's an interesting question. Um, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think I was really lucky to have been taken those roles that I've been taken in, in my past you know, 20 years. And I, and I still really enjoy what I do right now. And I, and I, you know, I'm still really excited with what I'm doing at the moment. I guess one of the advice I would give myself is to not lose sight of the bigger picture in a way that, um, you know, when we were younger, we would often compare how much we make, you know, in terms of salary, compensation, what kind of firm are you in? You know, when we try to talk with friends or peers that you grew up with, you sort of have that discussion, right? And maybe if I could not focus too much on trying to climb the ladder, but focus more on um, finding a role that you really enjoy in terms of working with the right people, understanding what kind of culture fits best for yourself, what kind of exposure this job will give you, uh, and the money as well. So, you know, I think those three elements, the people, the exposure, and the money, is something that we always should think about when we decide to move on to a new role. And I think that's something I would probably give as an advice to myself when I was much younger. Um, and I still do give that advice to myself now, you know, in my 
in the previous question. There's a lot happening around digital transformation, such as reg tech, uh, use of automation, robotics, etc. What do you see as compliance involvement in the digital transformation that's taking place? Robotics and data is, is something that I really enjoy looking at. You know, as I explained earlier, I was I was really into computing and when I was really young. So, um, and then when I was in Deutsche Bank, we started using data analytics to do what we do. And right now, I think as a compliance professional, um, the key challenge is to really stay ahead of what's out there, what kind of capabilities are out there, what are the competitors doing, and most importantly, what is our regulators doing? Because I know that a lot of the regulators are already using big data analysis to analyze trading patterns against uh, communication between traders, for example. Um, and as compliance professionals, if we don't keep aware of what's happening and what kind of technology is available for us, we will fall behind. Because even if in compliance assurance, in what we do, in trying to assess whether the business has controls to meet with the regulatory requirements, we cannot keep up with the traditional method of testing. We have to implement data analytics. We have to leverage any web tech that there is uh, because the bank as a whole is, has to be able to compete with the competitors. And we as compliance professionals have to be able to identify the risk in a much more real-time and a much more comprehensive manner. So understanding the robotics, the technologies, big data, analytics capabilities in the market is important. At the same time, a lot of us grew up in a more traditional accountant, lawyer background. So we need to realize that uh, our skill set might not be as fit to be able to implement a lot of these technologies, but we need to be able to be aware of the capabilities and what the outcome could be and how could we leverage those based on the knowledge that we have from a compliance and audit background and how do we leverage technology to do what we do in order for the bank to be fully compliant with the regulatory requirements. And that's something that I think it will be a continued focus for, for us in the next few years. And we just have to change our mindset to tackle this. I think it's really an interesting point you make there, Alan, because technology is going to have an impact across the three lines of defense. And this is something we've talked about on other podcasts. And even when you look at audit, I mean, one of the key things with audit at the moment is data analytics. Yet we've had um, people on the podcast before whose predictions are that, you know, in 10 years' time, data analytics is going to be the Sony Walkman uh, for audit. And, you know, we're really moving to real-time systems where systems are going to be built within banks to be able to pick up issues straight away rather than retrospectively later on down the track that there was this issue and how do we fix that. Um, So I, I do think... This is a really important point for anyone working in the three lines of defense is looking at technology, where is technology going and how do you upskill yourself to ensure that your career moves along with the changes that are happening from a tech point of view? Absolutely, absolutely agree. I mean, if you think about it, it could be like a manufacturing industry where some of us could be replaced by robotics. Mm. But I think the key for us as professional in internal audit or compliance is to stay updated, basically. We have to change our mindset. We need to understand where the gaps are from a knowledge perspective. We need to reach out. We need to be just mindful of how we can always implement um, lavish technologies to do what we do. Where do you see the increase of regulatory focus both now and going forward forward around governance and culture? The interesting point is very topical, and I think 
you know, while a lot of the banks has world-class control, you know, we, we do, we have good three lines of defense, but we're still getting a lot of regulatory fines, you know, you see globally. And I think one of the focus the regulator has putting on in the past few years is around governance and conduct mm. and accountability as well. And I think from a compliance perspective, how do we take part of this? How do we get involved with making sure that our you know, board members have a good tongue on the top? And how does that get cascaded to all the senior management, middle management, processing level? How does that culture of governance and accountability get implemented across the bank? I think compliance will play a critical role in and and I something that I think our, our, in city our, our regional health compliance has been saying is they see that compliance professionals are like personal trainers, like you go into the gym, where we have to work with the business, with our internal clients, in order to you know train them up with the mindset of accountability, conduct, and governance. And it is good for us, it's easy for us to implement control and to test them. But the conduct and how does them, each manager take accountability on what they do is critical. And I think compliance will have to play a really big role in playing the trainer, personal trainer role to help um, each one of the business stakeholders to be more fit so that we can meet with all those regulatory expectations um, on, around governance, around accountability and manager regime. There really is the realisation now that just creating rules upon rules doesn't work, isn't there? And that regulators are really looking towards, as you say, governance, culture, conduct uh, to try to really get this right going forward. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think compliance plays a big role in this because we do work with the regulators closely and we, we are responsible to drive this culture change as well. What about when you look at the, the regulatory focus and expectations going forward around ESG, uh, sustainable finance? Where do you see that going? That's a very interesting topic. Um, and that is something that we take quite seriously in city as well because a lot only that we do have uh, a, a very good structure around ESG reporting and specific sustainable finance products. Uh, but I think from a compliance perspective, we need to be staying ahead of the game in order to work with the regulators to understand what the expectation is. And I think around the region in Asia, there's been increasing focus around this, especially with the COVID-19 situation where you know a lot of the investors might be even more interested with products that would drive medical advancement, that would tackle climate change, you know. Um, and at the same time, from a regulatory framework perspective, there there aren't any hard rules. There's a lot of guidance and expectation that's been laid out by different local regulators. And I think as compliance professionals, we would have a job to be able to connect with them um, in order to understand what are the expectations, what is coming, so that we can prepare the bank in advance for any any requirements that might come around ESG compliance, ESG disclosures, or even um, what kind of product we can we can sell to a client. So as compliance professionals, I think we, we also play a good part in this. As as I said earlier, we work with regulators closely, and I think we have a duty to to work with them so that they can build up a framework around ESG that could really drive the investor interest. How do you manage? work pressure and stress. You, you've worked in many different roles and in, in key sort of leadership roles. How do you go about managing that daily pressure and stress that comes with the type of roles that you've, you're doing now and you've done in the past? Well, um, 
I guess I was doing different things at different times. So when I was a bit younger, I would often try to take it out on a morning drive. So I would go out on a Sunday, 6 a.m. to somewhere in Hong Kong where a lot of cars would meet on a tricky road. Then you just you know drive as fast as you can. <laughs> so that was a bit <laughs> not not breaking any uh, road rules, right? <laughs> Not breaking any rules at all, and we have good brakes and suspension and tires, so yes. you know we were able to do that properly. But um, no, that, that that was a good way for me to release the stress. At the same time, you know, as as I grew up, I I started moving to areas that are a little bit more relaxing for me. So I, I started doing a little bit more boating just to go out and see. You know, a very different environment. You listen to the waves and you just chill with a glass of wine. So I do that now quite often and. And I also recently picked up um, Thai boxing. I've uh, been doing that for one and a half years, and, and that helped a lot too. You know, not only to keep myself fit, but really to just you know any pressure you want to release uh, or anger, just, just go to the punching bag or, or your instructor to punch them. That's something that I really enjoyed as well as um, recently. I second that. I've done kickboxing uh, in the past, and it's a it's a great form of exercise and good way to release the uh, the stress of a day. Absolutely. What about your passions outside of work? And I'm sensing from uh, your our discussion today, cars is a passion. Would I be correct? Cars definitely one, uh, but I sort of moved on a little bit from there. I think traveling is another thing that we've been doing a lot with my family recently. But unfortunately, with the COVID situation, that has been put on pause for a while. So hopefully, we can get back to that. I love music. I do play the piano. Um, I haven't been playing for quite a while now. I actually almost got into a career in music because um, I was studying music in even up to high school and almost got into university with a music degree. Um, obviously, I, that didn't go through, but I, I, I enjoy music. I enjoy playing the piano. Um, yeah, and just spending time with family. And I have a 14-year-old daughter. Um, just growing up with her, it, 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 the exposure to see how she grows up is just fantastic. Do you ever use the piano as a way to manage stress and pressure? Because I know that there was another gentleman we've had on the podcast before who holds a very senior CCO position in a major Australian bank and his way of dealing with work pressure and stress was going home and playing the piano. Um, And his family knew that Mm. when he was on the piano, that was uh, his time to just sort of wind down and a bit of mindfulness and and, uh, enjoying the time playing the piano. Completely understandable. I did that when I was a little bit younger, especially when I was studying um, or whenever I miss home. I, I actually go on to play the piano and then you basically in your own bubble. When you play the song, you're in your own bubble, you don't think of anything else. And that, that feeling is really great. You know, it, it gives you time to reflect, gives you time to really enjoy what you do at that moment. But yeah, absolutely. I, 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 I've been doing more of that earlier, but a little bit less recently. And favourite car? If you could buy any car in the world, what would it be, Alan? I don't think I could put it to one car. <laughs> <laughs> You've got two choices that's then. Too many. <laughs> so I'll, I'm, I'm driving an electric car at the moment, so I think that's, that's the way in the future. And that's, that's, it's a very different animal. And, um, and I really do enjoy the technology, I think. So I might look forward to more electric cars in the future. Mm. Well, Alan, thank you so much for a fantastic insight into career journey uh, leadership, mentoring, and, and sharing more about your thoughts around, you know, compliance's involvement in digital transformation uh, and also, you know, the, the regulatory focus and expectations around ESG and sustainable finance. Uh, it's been really interesting sitting down talking with you today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Right, Thanks, Alan. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for listening to the show. 
We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.